Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. Joining me today is Steve Wiegand, a veteran journalist of such major newspapers as the San Diego Evening Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Sacramento Bee, as well as the author of U.S. History for Dummies, Lessons from the Great Depression for Dummies, The American Revolution for Dummies, and other historical compilations. Steve's latest work, 1876, The Year of the Gun, makes use of the unique perspective of choosing one specific year to reintroduce us to some of the biggest legends of the Wild West, their legacy, the innumerable myths surrounding them, and for the first time, placing them in the context of the wider history of the period. Hey, friend. Welcome to the Six Gun Justice Podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. You grew up in a time when cowboys dominated the movie screens and TV airwaves. How much of an influence did this have on you? Quite a bit, because I grew up, as you said, in the 50s, where every other movie that was made was a Western, and every other television show, or maybe even two out of three, were Westerns. And I grew up with the idea that American history was all about riding horses and carrying cult peacemakers on your head. Did you play Cowboys and Indians as a kid? Uh, I was outfitted with the 50s, which were the creme de la creme of pistols in those days. And I had those, and I had my red cowboy hat, and I even had red pajamas with cactuses and lassos on them. What were some of your favorite shows or movies that influenced you when you were that young? My favorite one that I recall was The Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok, which starred Guy Madison and Andy Devine. And that was my favorite of, of the Westerns in the late 50s. I also like a show, and I can't remember what network it was on. They rotated. There was Cheyenne, and there was Bronco, and there was Sugarfoot. And every third week, they would have one of those episodes. Great choices. Did you go on to later in life as a teen and as a young adult and as an adult to continue to enjoy Westerns? As it faded out in the 60s, I did so much I had grown up early on in Northern California, and then we moved to San Diego, and there was the ocean. And so I was a surfer and a fisherman, but I always liked Western movies. I never stopped liking the Western movies, and that always stuck with me in terms of my view of not just the West and what I like to do with the media, but my view of American history. That's what America was in the 19th century as far as I was concerned. I didn't realize that 80% of Americans lived east of the Mississippi and never rode horses and never lassoed cows and never did any of the things I saw on TV. All right. With that as a background, let's stampede the cattle and get down to spurs and roping. Having written books about U.S. history in general and the Depression and the American Revolution specifically in other works, what turned your interest to the Wild West to write about? When I was researching those other books that you mentioned, it struck me that in the media and popular culture, our view of the time after the Civil War was basically shooting buffalo and fighting Native Americans and doing all the things we saw on TV. Even into the 70s and 80s, that was still our view, and it was my view. And I realized that there were a lot of other things going on at the time. But I was still enamored of the whole romance of the Wild West And so I thought maybe I could tie those two together and point out to people that on the very same day that George Armstrong Custer was being killed at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, Alexander Graham Bell was demonstrating his telephone to a bunch of scientists in Boston. 
And I'm curious as to what else had happened. And the year 1876, which was America's 100th birthday, seemed like a good jumping off place. And then there were so many things that happened in the Wild West that were iconic in that particular year that everything fell into place. Did the time period of 1876 jump out at you as an epiphany, as a pivotal time in the West? Or did you just come to that realization more slowly as the research progressed? More slowly, because obviously I knew about the Battle of Little Bighorn, which was in 1876. So I started looking at that as sort of a taking off point. And then I realized it was also the year that Wild Bear Hickok was shot in the back and killed. And then I started looking for other things that involved iconic Western figures. That was the year the James Younger gang robbed the bank in Northfield and got shot up. Then I realized Bat Masterson had been in his first gunfight and killed his first man that year. And Wyatt Earp had gone into Dodge City and become deputy marshal. And Buffalo Bill Cody had engaged in a skirmish a few weeks after Custer and killed and scalped an Indian. So it all fell together from there. There are these six different events that happened that year involving all these six legends. And then I looked at other things that had happened in 1876, from a very controversial presidential election to the first successful canning of sardines in America. The fascination and the difference in this work is we're not looking at the events of the Wild West historically isolated. You look at them as part and parcel of something much wider. The thing is, most people, if you lived in the East in 1876, if you lived east of the Mississippi, you might as well have been looking at ancient Egypt as what was going on in, say, Dodge City or Wichita. You had no clue. There was no mass media, and you relied on dime novels and newspapers, which could be highly exaggerated, and occasionally things at the theater in terms of plays to get your vision of the Wild West. So their view in 1876 was just about as romanticized as our view was in the 1950s and 1960s as to what it was really like. And it was easy to lose track of the fact that the same year that Wyatt Earp was becoming a deputy marshal in Dodge City, Albert Spaulding was on the mound pitching for the Chicago White Stockings and starting the sporting goods empire. And Eli Lilly was opening a pharmaceutical company in Indianapolis. The idea that most Americans have the same view of the Wild West that we do now was fascinating. Looking at these events in the rest of the world and in the Wild West, do you feel that they happened in isolation or did they in any way have an effect on each other? It depended on the event. Certainly, Custer's last stand, the Battle of the Little Bighorn, had a huge effect on the entire country because at the time, it was one of the worst defeats the United States military had ever suffered, and people were shocked that could happen. Post-Civil War, the American area was considered invincible, particularly against Native Americans who were looked down upon as inferior human beings. But on other things like Wild Bill Hickok being killed in Deadwood, it didn't make a big splash. People knew who Wild Bill Hickok was because of the dime novels, but his death certainly didn't register as a big deal. So it really depended on the event. So Custer's defeat is played out through the rest of the country and the country reacts to it. But it with did. Wild Hickok's death, there's not really a conscious reaction to that. Exactly. Even a few years later, when the gunfight at the OK Corral happened, it was like maybe a paragraph or two in papers around the country, and most of the facts in it were wrong. So it just wasn't, it didn't resonate. It wasn't a big deal. 
Now, on the other hand, Buffalo Bill Cody, he got into a fight with some Cheyenne a few weeks after Custer and killed an Indian warrior named Yellowhand, scalped him, and sent the scalp and some other souvenirs back east, and that became part of his stage show that helped increase his celebrity quite a bit. So it really depended on the event. What happened was all these six events that I write about, they planted the seeds for the legends that grew up around various characters and also set up our view of the West. For instance, Bat Masterson. Nobody back east had ever heard of Bat Masterson and didn't hear about him for years and years. But he was in a fight over a saloon girl. He was badly wounded, and he shot and killed an army corporal. And that sort of helped set up the stereotypical battle over a saloon girl or a poker game or whatever it was. With showmen like Buffalo Bill, part of his gig was to increase his legend and to expound and enlarge the things he had done and the things he had seen. You couple that with the dime novels, that had to make everything larger than life, everything bigger than it was. And if it wasn't big enough, you just made it up. How difficult did it make it for you to separate those things from the actual facts of what happened? It was somewhat difficult in that I didn't want to get into a situation where I was just debunking all the myths about these guys. Because the myths are so much fun. The myths are so much fun, but there are the facts and there are the legends, and somewhere in between are the truths. And Buffalo Bill is a good example because he really did a lot of very cool things in terms of brave and courageous and taxing events. He really did fight in Native American battles. He killed all the buffalo that he killed from horseback to feed railroad workers. He once rode 300 miles on a mule in seven days to send messages back and forth between army forts. So he was the real deal. But he was also smart enough to take advantage of the fact people back east didn't know fact from fiction, so he could exaggerate everything he did to build his legend and, frankly, to make a lot of money. Did that with the Pony Express. Exactly. In fact, in his first autobiography, which I think he wrote about 75 versions, he changed his birth date to make himself older so he could say that he rode for the Pony Express. In fact, there's very little evidence that he ever did, if any at all. What we found when we did our episode on him is there was evidence to indicate that as a boy, he actually rode delivering messages between individuals as the Pony Express was starting up. So he had this tangential connection to them that became him actually riding for the Pony Express when he did his Wild West show. As you said, he delivered messages from towns to forts and from fort to fort. And as a young kid, both 13 14, he worked for a freight hauler, a giant freight hauling company. And he actually did some pretty long, arduous treks as part of freight hauling wagons. And that's where he met Wild Bill Hickok when he was 12, 13 years old. And he adopted a lot of Hickok's uh, mannerisms and his way of dressing and his way of talking. And Hickok became a mentor of his. And then later on, he actually hired Hickok for a while to work in his stage shows. These characters, which, as we've established, are iconic, right? They're part of the American consciousness. How do you feel their legends, not necessarily the truth about them, but their legends shaped American culture? Did it shape our values when we went to World War II? Did it have an effect on the average American in their attitude? I think it did, particularly, as you said, right before World War II and then in the 50s afterward. I think the one characteristic that played up among the American psyche was our idea of individualism. 
These were all guys who stood alone and right or wrong, they fought of their own course. And we got the idea of the American as the rugged individualist who stood up on his own two feet or her own two feet and took what life and dealt with it. So it wasn't so much that they were all recognized as heroes. Certainly Jesse James was a psychotic killer, but right or wrong did his own thing. And I think that became a big part of the American psyche. And also the idea that we could do just about anything if we put our mind to it. In the woke, politically correct atmosphere that we live in currently, do you see any effect today from those legends like it had in the 50s? There is a little bit. There's been some revisionism, particularly in the case of George Custer, where he'd gone from hero to right after the little bighorn, he was blamed for it. And then he became lionized through the efforts of his wife, for the most part, for 50 years. And then now it's gone around full circle, and now he's considered pretty much a military bozo for what happened at the little bighorn. But the rest of them, I don't think so, because they still stood out for that individuality and for that relying on themselves and for going through right or wrong, whether they had a tragic life. They didn't do a lot of whining about it and took the breaks. And I still think they may be dismissed a little bit more than they used to be. But really, if you look at Star Wars, Han Solo is just Wyatt Earp in space. It's the same kind of character. And I think that started with these guys and has carried through. That's a good point. We've just come off a series of episodes we collectively called our Worldwide West Tour, where we looked at the indigenous Westerns of a number of other countries. How do you feel these legends and characters had an effect on how the rest of the world looks at America? I think it had a huge effect. It started with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. The last part of the 19th century, his Wild West show appeared in Europe more than it did in America. That created a lasting impression of what an American was like. You could be from Boston and go to Paris, say, and they wanted to know about what kind of gun you had and what kind of horse you rode. Did you know any Native Americans? And that became the image through World War I and beyond as to what Americans were like. I agree because there's a certain amount of bravado and cachet that gains a reputation with the rest of the world. The Wild West, the individualism, the ready-to-go-for-your-guns attitude, I think plays a part in the consciousness of other countries when they're faced with antagonism towards America. I think so. And I think part of that is because these guys were viewed as individuals who didn't worry about custom and didn't worry about the way they would be perceived and their place in society. And we've got Yellowstone running on television here. We also have Downton Abbey, but there is no way that Downton Abbey relates to anything in American history, as opposed to Yellowstone or 1883 or some of the more modern shows. I think still in Europe, there's a certain admiration for American individualism. I don't know how many people fantasize about living in Downton Abbey unless you're going to be the upstairs people. So you're saying you don't exactly see the dowager on horseback with a six-gun strapped to her hip? Right. I don't see a lot of Americans saying, gee, I wish I could live in Victorian England. Whereas I think in Europe, there are still a lot of people that kind of have a wish they could go to a dude ranch and do the things they saw on Tombstone or Deadwood or Dodge City. You've written extensively on politics as a journalist. Did that experience, that political background, have any impact on how you viewed the year 1876? 
some degree, but actually it was just the opposite because in writing about 1876 and researching the presidential election that year, I was struck by the similarities. We tend to wring our hands now and worry about the ideological split between the Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives. In fact, it existed all the way through our history, and the post-Civil War period was just as divisive and just as bitter and just as nasty as it is now. In fact, in the year 1876, you had a fellow in Congress pull a gun on the floor of the House of Representatives on another member of Congress and threaten to shoot him if he didn't sit down and shut up. We haven't got to that point yet. I was more struck by the fact that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's a good point. I hope we don't get back to the point where we have guns on the floor of Congress. But <laughs> no, not either. <laughs> Did your perspective on the West change personally as you were researching this book? A little bit. As I said earlier, I never really thought about the fact there were so many people who didn't live in the West and who didn't have any better idea about it than we did 100 years later. So I was more struck by the fact that we call it the Wild West, and yet in many ways the West was much more progressive or much more practical or pragmatic than the rest of the country. Women got the vote far earlier in Western states and territories than they did back East, and it was a practical matter. There just weren't very many people, and if somebody wanted to be on the city council and they happened to be a woman and nobody else wanted to do the job, they said, what the heck, let's have a woman be on the city council or in the legislature. That was a surprise to me. I didn't really think that much about how practical you had to be because life was a lot tougher than it was in the East. The Horace Greeley quote, go West, young man, we've talked about how in reality that was specific to go West, young woman, because there were so much more opportunities that people didn't think about for women in the West because there weren't the restrictions that were put on them in the East. And as you say, if there was nobody else to do that job and a woman was willing to do it, then she did it. Yeah, exactly. And a good example of that is in the East, for the most part, women could be teachers until they got married. And then they had to quit because the thought was that a man had a job and the woman didn't need a job anymore. In addition to which, women teachers were paid less than men teachers. Out West, that wasn't the case. They needed teachers, period. They didn't care if it was a two-headed giraffe, if it, could, if it could teach. They not only didn't have to quit when they got married, but they were paid the same amount as a male teacher. That's the kind of practicality that went on in the West that I had never thought about before. Certainly, life was very tough for women in the West. But in reality, it was very tough for women everywhere. But in the West, we had women who were newspaper publishers. We had women who were ranch owners after their husbands passed away. They were doctors. We had women that did so many different things they couldn't do on the East Coast. And I think the independence-mindedness that we talk about when we say the influence the Wild West had on the rest of the world, I think that's a part of it. Absolutely. That, that kind of rubbed off on the men in the West as well and helped that individuality and everybody had to hold their weight. And people just looked at things a little bit more pragmatically and realistically than maybe they did elsewhere. Now, did you have a favorite character from 1876 that you felt stood above the others that you wrote about? Bat Masterson and Will Cody. 
I admired Masterson, number one, because he had a sense of humor. He was a great practical joker. He was well-liked. He helped out a lot of people. For instance, he helped Doc Holliday to keep him from being extradited back to Arizona from Colorado after the gunfight at the OK Corral and the Vendetta ride. Even though he hated Holiday, he thought Holiday was a jerk, but he did it out of loyalty to Wyatt Earp, who was Bat Masterson's good friend. But I like Bat because he adapted. After a certain point, when he got to be in middle age, he went east, and a lot of people don't know, he became a journalist. And for the last 20 plus years of his life, he was actually a sports editor for the New York World Telegram in New York City. He adapted well. And the other character, Cody, same thing. He was not a phony. He was not just a Wild West showman. He had really done all the things that we look up to as the Wild West icons. But he was shrewd enough to take that and exaggerate the image and open it up to the rest of the world. Both of those guys I liked because they were adaptable, maybe more so than others. Were there any characters that when you were doing your research, you felt, I'm not going to include, they don't have a strong enough appeal or they just don't fit with the situation? The six I wrote about stood out because they were well known. And I thought six was about the maximum I could squeeze in. I had hoped to include, I don't know, out of political correctness or whatever, I'd hoped to include a strong Western woman figure, but none of them fit the myth or the iconic part. They had made big contributions, maybe, but they didn't fit. Let me put it this way. They didn't get a television show after them in the 1950s. So uh, <laughs> I kind of had to stick with what, what, what was there. Steve, unfortunately, that's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle telling me it's time to wrap up this episode with some shootouts and shoutouts. I appreciate you sharing your extensive knowledge with us today and wish you the best of luck as 1876, the year of the gun, continues to get the attention it deserves. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate you having me on and I hope to talk to you soon. I'll look forward to it. Thanks to our Six Gun Justice podcast Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride.